0: Are we all ready? <clears throat> yeah, let's get going, right? Okay, I just need to ask you, to the best of your ability, if um, we can be a little quieter. I don't want you not to talk to your neighbor, but my voice is, you know, just it's the way it is. After I speak on a Sunday or at a service, my voice sort of goes down, so uh, it's hard for me to, to project and to strain. But um, let me first of all say this. I know that there have been some who have said, gee, you know, you've been when you've been preaching, you've been saying we're going to Shabbat, going to Shabbat. When have you ever spoke to the congregation? I just want you to know that for the past two years or so, uh, periodically, the elders have been talking about this idea of of moving toward Shabbat. And uh, perhaps I let things out of the cat out of the bag prematurely in some context. But for me, it was sort of an exciting thing. And like at Passover, I wanted to uh, let those that were primarily our visitors and others know that this was sort of in our thinking. Uh, It was never meant to be the kind of thing that we were imposing, dictating uh, in any way, shape, or form. They were the reflection of our thoughts and ideas, and as time went on, we all went through a metamorphosis. We didn't all come at this and saying, "Hey, we want to move to Shabbat. Let's go." You know, there were disagreements. There were uh, uh, nothing was ever contentious or argumentative. Just differing points of view, but we've now all arrived on the same page. When that happened, uh, I sort of spoke about those kinds of things, and now we'll have opportunity to articulate this a little clearer and a little fuller. I don't have all the answers, but Bob and Chuck and Jerry and Chris can weigh in. Um, If you can let me just go through some of this, then at the end we can raise some questions. I'm hoping that as I go through, many of the questions will already be answered. Um, But you're certainly welcome to ask and any kind of clarifications that might be needed. Uh, Can everyone see this? Now this uh, title, Bob had this at the title of his paper, but there's a book called From Lord's Day to Shabbat. And uh, I just sort of was thinking about from, I was going to say from Lord's Day to Shabbat, but it's really Sunday to Shabbat or the first day of the week to the seventh day. But in any case, why should we consider these changes? Now, I'm a Bible teacher. Uh, I'm not a, a real philosopher or historian, although I dabble in those things. So when these kinds of questions come to me, the first thing I start thinking about is, what does the Bible teach about that? What does the Bible have to say? So this is how my train of thought is going to be uh, sort of revealed. First of all, the question is, who are we? Well, we're Beth AriO Messianic Congregation, but what does it mean to be Messianic? What does it mean to be a messianic congregation? And variety of answers to this. This is a complex question. It's like asking what does it mean to be Jewish? You know, even the Jewish community doesn't know how to define what it means to be a Jew, you know. Uh, some say a Jew is born of a Jewish mother. Some say a true Jew is one who immigrates to Israel. A real Jew is one who can speak Hebrew. Uh, a real Jewish person is Orthodox, not those conservatives over there or the Reform Jews. Those aren't real Jews. The real, Jew, you know. So there's all kinds of questions about what that even means, and so it trickles down, you might say, to who we are. Uh, Not exclusively here at Beth Ariel, but with regard to what it means to be a Messianic congregation and how does Jewishness fit into that, whatever Jewishness means. So this is an ongoing evolutionary sort of thing that is true in the Jewish community. It's true in our community. So what does it mean to be a Messianic congregation? Here's my thinking. In the very least, there are at least three things I think need to be considered when you think of oneself as a Messianic believer. Number one, faithfulness to God's word. Now, you might say First Baptist down the block believes that, too. Well, that's maybe true. Um, But in the very least, a messianic congregation is faithful to God's word. As I shared earlier, this is God's word to us, and so everything must flow out of what we understand the word of God to teach. Secondly, it means that we're going to express our faith and life in a Jewish way. Again, what does it mean to be Jewish? Well, we have to wrestle with that. But we're unlike faith Baptists because they're not concerned about expressing their faith in a Jewish way or their life in a Jewish way. But we are. Whatever that might mean, we're concerned about that. The reason for that concern will come up. And then lastly, I think it means not only with regard to who we are, but it also means something to do with what we are, who we are in regards to the broader community, the broader Jewish community. So something has to do with us individually, but something with regard to the Jewish community collectively. How do we identify with the Jewish community as well as how do we express our faith? Is everybody with me? Okay, so my PowerPoint is going to take us through these three points. So the first is this, what does it mean to be faithful to God's word with regard to what does Shabbat mean? And uh, what does the Bible teach about that? Well, first of all, the word Shabbat means to cease, to desist, to rest. Okay, that's what Shabbat means. It is the principle that flows out of the Shabbat, which is the seventh day of the week. It is not the first day. There's no such thing as a Christian Shabbat or a Christian Sabbath. Sunday is not a Sabbath. The scriptures never speak of it that way. Now, do I condemn people that speak that way? No, they're free to speak that way. I'm only saying, what does the Bible teach? Culture brings about a lot of ideas and thoughts, vocabulary, and reflections. But my concern is, what does the Bible teach? The Bible doesn't teach a Christian Sabbath. The Bible doesn't teach the first day of the week to be a Sabbath. But it does teach that the seventh day of the week was a uh, is a Sabbath. So it means at least this much. The principle is one day in seven, we're to rest. And that's all the scripture says about Uh, resting. It doesn't define resting. In fact, when, or I should say, when it does define resting in the Bible, it doesn't define what it is. It defines what it is not. So, for example, resting is not picking up manna on the Sabbath, Exodus 16. Resting is not lighting a fire. Resting is not traveling. You know, it doesn't specify how much travel but over and over again the scriptures and that's why the rabbis have 39 different definitions of what it means to work because the bible focuses on what not to do on the sabbath or what does not constitute rest it does not speak of what does rest mean so it's hard to define now god gives us an example he ceases from creating so that sort of opens the floodgates to say, so what? how can we apply this idea of ceasing to create? And that's what the rabbis attempt to do. Anyway, I don't want to go down this road too far. I just want to give you an idea of my thinking and my thoughts. So the first allusion to the Sabbath is Genesis chapter 2, where it says God rested. But it's very clear and important to note, he does not institute the Sabbath as a commandment in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is descriptive of what God did. He rested. It is not prescriptive of what we're supposed to do. It never says, and therefore Adam rest. It never says, and Adam and Eve celebrated Shabbat with God. There's nothing like that. In fact, you never read Abraham observed Shabbat, Isaac observed Shabbat, Joseph, Jacob, or any of them until you get to Exodus 16 and then with clarification, chapter 20. So anyone says to you, the Shabbat begins in Genesis, it's not true. It's an allusion back from the law to Genesis, but Genesis is not the creation of the Shabbat. Now that's important. Why is that important? Because when we understand that Messiah fulfills the law, That means observing the Sabbath is not a requirement or obligation for us because all of the law has been fulfilled for us and in us. Now, we don't want to go down too many of these things, but these are critical specifics. Not only does it say Messiah fulfills the law by obeying it, but he fulfills the law in attributing his fulfillment to us. Therefore, we stand righteous before God. So he fulfills it. By and in. He fulfills it by obeying it. He fulfills it in us by applying its fulfillment for us so we're not guilty of breaking the law. Now, this is important because there are some who say Messiah fulfilled the law, but the Shabbat law begins in Genesis and that's before the Mosaic law. Everybody with me? So if Messiah fulfills the Mosaic law, What about this law of the Sabbath in Genesis, which is preceding the Mosaic law? If he only fulfills the Mosaic law, and this is a law of the Sabbath in Genesis that he doesn't fulfill, then we're still obligated to obey it. Everybody clear on that? So it's important for me to clarify The Shabbat commandment is not in Genesis. It's only in the Mosaic law, which Messiah fulfills. So whatever we do about Shabbat, it's not out of a sense of obligation, duty, responsibility, or requirement to do this. We are free in Messiah to worship on any day. Colossians says, let no one judge you regarding a Sabbath. He not only says a holy day and and a festival, he says, end a Sabbath. So we're not judging others who choose to do Sabbath for whatever reason they want. I'm only reflecting what we understand the Bible to say, which gives us the freedom to worship on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the freedom to worship on Shabbat. Everybody good? Okay, so what does the Bible say? First allusion is here. And the first Sabbath commandment, Exodus 16, Exodus 20, which I've already made reference to. But the law, now these are things, since since the Shabbat commandment is part of the Mosaic law, I want to show you what the scriptures teach us about the law. Now, before I just look at this verse, I want you to keep in mind Romans chapter 7, Paul says the law is holy, just, and good. So do not take anything Paul says here to contradict his sense of it being holy, just, and good. First of all, Messiah fulfills the law. He says, I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here's an important distinction. Yeshua does not say, I've come to obey them. He says, I've come to fulfill them. So fulfillment means more than merely obeying. He certainly did obey. He was sinless. But he does more than merely obey it, he fulfills it in all of its entirety. In other words, the law speaks of him, and he reflects its speaking of him. And he not only fulfills it in its broadest sense, he fulfills it in our behalf. That's what he's telling us here. Further, Romans chapter 10 tells us there was a termination period for the law. Paul says, Messiah is the end of the law. The Greek word here is telos. It is true, the word telos can mean complete the law. But that's its secondary meaning. Its primary meaning means to bring to an end, to conclude, to stop. And therefore, the law then, including the commandment of the Sabbath, has been ended. So we are not suggesting a movement to Shabbat because we think somehow the law commands us to. The law is no longer in operation as a mechanism by which we demonstrate our faithfulness to God. But we are free to adjust our lives to it if we feel so called. But know the Greek word. It means end. Now, I know some are saying, what? That's what it means. So um, we're just presenting what's here. Thirdly, Paul tells us the law could not declare anyone righteous. Righteous. That's what justified means, to be declared righteous. The law does not do that. He says, know that a man is not justified by observing law, because by observing law, no one will be declared righteous. We're not moving to Shabbat so we can be righteous, because obedience to the law will not do that for us. Secondly, the law could not make anyone more holy. I've talked to some people, they say, obey the law because I want to be more righteous. I want to be perfected in the Lord. I want to walk more holy with him. The law cannot do that for you either. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews says. If perfection, if sanctification, if holiness, that's what's meant by perfection, could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there a need for another priest? If we were able to attain any level of holiness Righteousness, perfection, use whatever word you want, better standing before God by the law. The writer to the Hebrews, Jewish writer to Jewish believers. He's saying, why would there be a need for another priest? The reason there's a need for another priest is because the law cannot make you more perfect. There's only one being that can make us perfect, and it's not a thing. It's the work of God by his spirit, He alone can make us righteous. The law can't do it. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Further, the book of Galatians, he tells us, what then was the purpose of the law? Why give it at all? And he tells us it was added. Notice, added, here's the question. Added to what? What was it added to? It didn't just appear. Paul is telling us God gave the law, including the Shabbat commandment. Remember, that's our focus. It was added to something. Second, he tells us it had something to do with sin because he says it's because of transgressions and it was only temporary because it's until. The word until means there's a termination point. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, Yeshua tells us, you will not see me anymore until you shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a termination period at which we will see him. But you're not going to see Messiah anymore until. And thus he's saying here, the law was added until. There's a point at which the law is ended. The law is no longer in, uh, in action. It's no longer the basis upon which we demonstrate our faith by command. We're free to but we're not obligated or required to. Is everybody with me? Okay, hopefully this gets clearer. Here's the three points he's making in Galatians. The law was added to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, now why is that important? There are five basic covenants in the scriptures. Covenants are promises. They're God's way of binding himself to do for others what they cannot do for themselves. Four of them are unconditional One of them is conditional. The Mosaic law is the only conditional covenant in the Bible. That's why it says if you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you'll be judged. That's the condition of the Mosaic law. All other covenants are unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant mentioned here. Abraham is not told, do this and you'll have this promise. In fact, when the promise is given to Abraham, he's asleep. Look at that in Genesis chapter 15. He's asleep and God binds himself to the promises he makes to Abraham, and Abraham has to do do nothing in return. The Abrahamic covenant's the most important of all the covenants. It's the umbrella covenants for everything else, because in the Abrahamic covenant, he promises Abraham a land, the land of Israel. He promises him a descendant, the Messiah and David, and he promises him a, a blessing. Now, from those three promises, God makes three more covenants that are unconditional. With regard to the promise of the land, he promises the Jewish people, the book of Deuteronomy, what's referred to as the land covenant, the covenant regarding the land of Israel. Why does the land of Israel belong to Israel? Why does the promised land belong to the Jewish people? Because God covenantally promised it to them. He promised it in the Abrahamic covenant and through a subsidiary covenant called the land covenant. Everybody good? Second covenant was the Davidic covenant, found in 2 Samuel 7 or so. He promises David, you'll always have a descendant to sit on the throne. That descendant is the Messiah. He promised Abraham, in you, in your seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then the third co- fourth covenant is the new covenant. The new covenant found in Jeremiah 31, reiterated the book of Hebrews, is a covenant that builds on the promise to Abraham that in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the new covenant is a covenant in which Jews and Gentiles cash in on temporarily here in Messiah and in the Messianic age, all of Israel will participate. Four unconditional covenants. Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, the land covenant, the new covenant. One conditional covenant, the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was added to the Abrahamic covenant. It's added alongside it because it's distinct from it. It's distinct in that it's conditional. The Abrahamic covenant is not. It's distinct in that it was temporary until the Abrahamic covenant is eternal. It is still in operation today. That's why we would encourage Jewish believers who have sons as children on the eighth day to circumcise their sons. Why? Because it's not only the Mosaic law that refers to circumcision. The Abrahamic covenant refers to circumcision. And that is still operative. And because the Abrahamic covenant is still operative, then the promise of the land is still viable to the Jewish people. The promise of a king to reign on the throne of David is viable because the Abrahamic covenant is still viable. And the promise of future blessing is still a promise to anticipate because it's part of an unconditional promise. There's no untilness with regard to the Abrahamic, the Divinic, the uh, land, or the new covenant. The Mosaic law, completely different. There is a temporary nature to it. It was added alongside. We are not obeying Shabbat because we have to. We're obeying Shabbat for some other reasons we'll get to. But the law was added to the Abrahamic covenant. The law, Paul tells us, clarified sin. See, the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were sinning. But they did not necessarily know why. Or they did not necessarily know with respect to what. They knew certain moral codes, but now God is giving them 613 laws. What does it do? It specifies where they are violating uh, God's standard. So he tells us it was added to clarify sin for the Jewish people. Therefore, it is holy, just, and good. That's a good thing. It's good to know the law, you know, because when you break it, you're responsible for it. And I can remember many times, I didn't know that was the law. Yeah, well, now, you know, here's the ticket. So it's a nice thing that Israel knew the law before any other nations knew. They knew what to avoid, what not to do. And so it was added for that purpose. And it had a termination point when the Messiah would come. And that's what Yeshua told us. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. If he came to destroy, the law would not exist for any reason whatsoever. But we still can learn from it. We still can be instructed by it. We still can benefit by it. And we can understand the nature of God more fully because of it. But once Messiah fulfills it, we are free of its obligations. And I would take one step further. To the degree to which you do not embrace that, you are minimizing the work of Messiah. That's why he came. And what people are doing is they're elevating the law over Messiah. And we're not worshipers of the law. We're worshipers of Messiah. And as long as I'm here and any one of these elders are here, that will never occur where Messiah is not lifted up forthrightly, clearly, and celebratively. (laughs) (laughs) People are not going to come in here as I've gone into some messianic congregations. And I wonder, is Jesus of any value here at all? He's all of value here. All of this stuff is secondary. It's important. It's interesting. But in the end of the day, it is Messiah whom we serve, love, and worship. None of this stuff. And that's why I say we've been worshiping 30 years on Sunday. Why? Because is first. But now we feel God is calling us in a new direction. That's what we're sharing. So we're still going here. So uh, the law is ineffective. This is all Paul's words, right? Paul says, as touching the law, I'm blameless. He says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. These are not, we're not reading the words of someone who is a self-loathing Jew. We're talking about someone who honored himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. So when I share these things, you know, it's not a matter of, hey, man, you know, like you're deprecating what it means to be Jewish. Listen, Paul is saying this. And we're just trying to understand them. So notice Paul's characterization. Look what he says. Read it, 2 Corinthians. He says it's that which kills. He tells us it brought death. He said it condemns. He said it's fading away. You know, as valuable as it is, it's not valuable enough for what we need. So here's the thing. What does it mean to fade away? This is another interesting Greek word. The Greek word is kartageo which means to render inoperative. Translations are really not so effective here. Paul's point is the law, and if you look at 2 Corinthians, he's focusing on the Ten Commandments. And he says the law, with particular emphasis on the Ten Commandments, have passed away and are no longer operating. Here's another thing people don't realize. While in the New Testament, Paul reiterates all the Ten Commandments, he does not reiterate the Sabbath commandment. He does say, Honor your father and mother, because that's the first commandment with promise. He does say love the Lord, and he does talk about thou shalt not steal. But try to find the, his restatement of obey the Sabbath day, keep it holy. He never does, says that. Because these other commandments, he's not trying to tell us obey the Ten Commandments. He's just using the Ten Commandments as a basis upon which he wants to buttress his understanding of how we ought to live. So, summary. The seventh day of the week is still the Sabbath. That hasn't changed. That's not obligated as such. There's no Christian Sabbath, Sunday Sabbath, or any other kind of Sabbath than the seventh day of the week Sabbath. It's the day on which God rested from his six days of creating. Individuals are no longer obligated to obey the Sabbath commandment. And considering Shabbat service is not motivated out of a desire to comply with Sabbath regulations or commandment. Okay, so that's the first part. I wanted to get a biblical understanding of the Sabbath. That's what I learned, and that's what I'm sharing with you. The second point is that as a Messianic congregation, not only do we want to be faithful to God's word, and there are many other things in God's word we have to be faithful to, but we're talking about the Sabbath, but we are ones that want to express our life and faith in a Jewish way. So I want to talk more about our faith as such than life moments. Bob has written a very extensive uh, Uh, explanation of some ideas of how it can impact our life individually, and we'll make all this stuff available to you after uh, this presentation. But I want to talk more in more general terms than specific terms. First of all, I think it's important for us to realize the early Jewish believers observed the Sabbath. They did not worship Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. They didn't do that. They were in the temple during the day. They gathered with fellow believers Saturday evening. Remember, the days of the week begin in Jewish thought, evening to sundown. Genesis 1.1, the evening and the morning became the first day. E- Sunday morning, first day of the week, begins Saturday night. So when the Jewish believers gathered, they gathered as Jews in the temple or synagogue. But when they gathered as fellow believers, they gathered Saturday night. And because of the work Day in the ancient world The first day of the week was a day of work And so Sunday morning They were off working So the Sabbath Jewish believers continued to worship on the Sabbath Yeshua himself These are all references where it says Yeshua entered the synagogue So you can take a look at them We'll make them all available to you But Luke 14, I thought this was cool On the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue As was his custom So he did this all the time He didn't just do it so as to proclaim himself Messiah, although he's certainly going to do that. But he did this because he lives during the era when the law is still operating. He's obeying the law and fulfilling it. Therefore, he must worship, gather, rest on Shabbat. And he does. That was his custom. That's what he did over and over again. The early believers, including Paul, there's the whole thing. You go through the book of A- Acts, Paul and Barnabas was leaving the synagogue. They said, Uh, We want to hear more about these things, not tomorrow, not Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They want to hear on the next Shabbat. And they say, so on the next Shabbat, almost the whole city gathers to hear. Well, that's when Jews gather, and that's when Paul gathers, and he's teaching the Word. That's the time to learn the Word. Acts 16, on the Sabbath, we went out the city gate to the river. We're expected to find a place to prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women. Acts 17, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, three weeks, he reasons from the scriptures. He tells them, Yeshua, I'm proclaimed to you as the Messiah in the synagogue. In Acts 18, every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue. Acts 18, when they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, he, Paul, went into the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. Acts 18, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Acts 19, Paul entered the synagogue, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Acts 21, the next day, Paul took men, purified himself. He's in Jerusalem. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification. He's submitting himself to Jewish tradition and Jewish legal matters as well. James or Jacob, Yaakov, the early Jewish believers, he tells us, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Yeshua. I love that. That's his brother. It's really nice to see brothers get along, isn't it? Our glorious Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your synagogue, comes into your synagogue. Could have said comes into your church. Could have said comes into your ecclesia. Paul always uses ecclesia, but interestingly enough, the Septuagint, written 150 years before the time of Messiah, Greek translation, for kahal is the word ecclesia. So when the New Testament uses ecclesia, you think kahal. Kahal means congregation. So, to the congregation at Rome, to the congregation at Ephesus, to the congregation at, you fill in the blank. But here, interesting, Yaakov, Jacob, doesn't use kahal or ecclesia. He uses synagogue, into your synagogue. Beth Ariel Messianic Synagogue. Any takers? Anyone like that? <laughs> I like it too. Anyway, <clears throat> we're not going down that road. Just, just, just... Throwing out a thought. 2 Corinthians 9, am I not free? To the Jews I became like a Jew. He is Jewish. So what do you mean he became like a Jew? It means he submitted himself to Jewish traditions that he knew, but he was doing it now because I'm not under the law, but I do it like one under the law, and his motivation is so that they'll hear the Lord. Acts 28, this is kind of a cool thing too. He gathers in Rome with the Jewish leaders. And this is his final statement when he's brought to Rome. Three days later, Paul called together the leaders of the Jews. When they assembled, Paul said, you know why I'm here? You know why I'm here in Rome? I've been found guilty. And therefore, I appealed to Rome. And I appealed to Caesar. Here's what I'm guilty of. Although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. Think about that. Paul's telling us he's free. Paul's telling us that the law is holy, just, and good, but we're not obligated. But what was Paul doing? He still lived his life in a very Jewish way in accordance with their customs and never doing anything against our people. So why was he brought to Rome? The reason was because of his hope in the resurrection. Because when he went into the temple, he said Yeshua the Messiah is raised from the dead, and the Sadducees who controlled the temple said, we don't believe that stuff. And they started riding against him, and he appealed to Rome. And that's sort of my feeling. I would rather be arrested for my faith in Messiah than because I meet on Sunday. I would rather be, you know, maligned by the Jewish community because I believe in the resurrection of Yeshua than because I, I worship on Sunday. That's what's happening to Paul. I've always been consistent with regard to the Jewish tradition. But I'm here because I'm challenged regarding my faith. So that's, that's the issue. And not only this, but our freedom Messiah permits us to worship on Shabbat. But it doesn't permit us to condemn us who do not. Because Paul says, one man considers one day more sacred, another man considers every day alike. Everyone should be fully convinced in his own mind. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment. In other words, the judgment's going on. It wasn't like, so don't ever... But he said, stop doing it because you already are. So that's uh, an indictment. In Colossians, he says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So that's Paul's instruction to us. These are shadows of things. The law was a shadow of something greater than itself. And that is Messiah himself. So since we're free to worship on the Shabbat, What benefits are there in doing this? Okay, so this is my thoughts. Number one, Sabbath worship can encourage Jewish believers to identify uh, among uh, Jewish believers, can can encourage Jewish, I'm sorry, Sabbath worship can encourage Jewish identity among Jewish believers. It can encourage it. Uh, There's more to Jewishness than meeting on Shabbat, but it can encourage our identity as Jews because when do Jews worship? They worship on Shabbat. There are some who worship on Sunday, you and I, but the majority of the Jewish community does not do that. So this is a way we can identify with them by personal choice and through freedom. Sabbath worship can enrich the faith of non-Jewish believers because it's another thing that helps them understand the roots of our faith, which is uh, connected or rooted uh, in uh, the Jewish milu, the Jewish world. Sabbath worship will enable us to more fully fulfill our calling and purpose as a Messianic congregation. That's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we First Baptist or are we a Messianic congregation? Nothing wrong with Faith Baptist, First Baptist, or any Baptist. We have to ask ourselves, who are we? And so who are we? If we're a Messianic congregation, well, what does that mean for us? I know what it means for the Baptists. I pastored a small Baptist church. And, you know, they oftentimes said to me, why can't we have more Hebrew liturgy? Why can't we have this? And I said, I'm happy to do it, but you guys aren't Jewish. Our world here is not not a messianic world. Now, if you want to do that, we can do that. But there was something inauthentic for me, and they respected that. But now I'm not in a Baptist church, and neither are you. We're in a messianic congregation. In some sense, there's something inauthentic about who we are claiming to be with regard to when we worship and how we act. So we're just calling for more consistency, more parallel, more connections between what we understand and we all affirm. I'm not saying anything here that any of us disagree with. We're now asking ourselves, do we go to the next level of manifesting that messianic identity, is it meaningful for us to do it personally and collectively? And so now, since we're free to worship on the Sabbath, what benefits are there? Sabbath worship can enable us to more noticeably manifest ourselves as the faithful remnant. Now, this is another theological idea that is so wonderful in Scripture. It is particularly outlined in uh, the prophet Isaiah, who speaks of... Those among the Jewish people who have been faithful to God. 1 Kings chapter 18, you remember, Elijah uh, bemoans the fact that I alone am left as one's faithful to God. And God says, well, there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul uses that analogy in Romans 11 to speak about Jewish people of his day who are manifestors of this faithful remnant. The importance of the faithful remnant is in two directions, or three. With regard to the Jewish believers, it's an affirmation of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he would never cause his people to ever end. That if you can count the stars in heaven, so shall your seed be multiplied that there would be an ongoing group of people whom he has chosen for himself, and as much as the evil one or anyone else might attempt to annihilate us, God's faithfulness has been exhibited by the retaining and retention of his people. But within that group, there are those of us who are not only Jews by name and nature, but we are Jews at heart as well. That's Paul's point in Romans 2.28. He is not a Jew who is circumcised in the flesh, but he is a Jew who's been circumcised in the heart, whose praise is not of men, but of God. What is Paul's point in Romans 2.28? He's not saying all believers are Jews because all believers are circumcised in heart. He's saying that Jews who are circumcised in their flesh is one thing. But the true Jew, the faithful Jew, the Jew who is as he ought to be is the Jew who follows in faithfulness before God and that faithfulness is in the acknowledgement of Yeshua as Messiah. That Jew has not only been circumcised in the flesh but also in his heart. His praise then is not merely of men but also of God. So a faithful remnant person is a Jewish person who's come to know Messiah as Savior. Why is that important to me? Because I'm not alone, as Elijah thought himself to be. There are 7,000 others who are my uh, family members, you might say, with regard to the flesh, as well as to the spirit. But there's a second reason that's important. The reason Paul even brings up the faithful remnant in Romans chapter 11 is to answer the question in Romans chapter 8. Where he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God and Messiah Yeshua. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present. Nothing can separate us. So the question is, how do you know that? What's the proof that that is trustworthy? Yeshua says, I mean Paul says, the faithful remnant. Faithfulness among the Jewish people is the sign to all believers that God will be faithful to you because look how he's been faithful to Israel. Jews are not all lost. There are some that God has saved. And if God is faithful to his people whom he has chosen, how much more will he be faithful to those who have embraced his son, who may not be Jewish by nature, but are uh, united in God's blessings to the covenants he made to the Jewish people. So the faithfulness is important for us as Jewish believers. It's important with regard to non-Jewish believers because it's your sign and symbol that authenticates God's promises to you. It's nowhere else. And you can go to churches and hear all kinds of things about how you can be assured of God's blessings to you, but there is only one answer. There aren't many. The one answer is there's faith among the house of Israel. You won't hear that in many churches, believe me. But that's what the Bible teaches. How can you be assured that that the promises to you are certain? You could say, I feel it in my heart. But there are days I know you don't feel it in your heart. Because there are days I don't. So what will stand objectively from my heart that convinces me that my God truly is on a throne and has my best interests in mind? The Jewish people, the faithfulness among them. We become a sign and symbol to the church, as it were. That God is faithful to you. They don't know this. That's okay. But as a Messianic congregation, we can demonstrate it. And that's a good thing for them. Number one, it helps them understand the Bible better. And number two, it gives them something that is objective, that will encourage them in their walk with the Lord and not leave it to just some kind of subjective thoughts. So the faithful remnant is critical. There are many other things we could say about it, but time is afoot. And then uh, our Messiah's final mandate. So now moving to the third thing. That had to do with Jewish identity. Now this has to do with the Jewish community. So why do I think moving to Shabbat is a good thing? Our Messiah's final mandate, go into all the world, make all disciples. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, as we have said. We want to be a good witness to our people whom we desire to reach. We want to be a good witness to everybody. That we want to reach I had a couple in It was so neat Andrea Plattner Had a couple Who were doing Two gals Who were doing A, a study on slavery in the Civil War And came to Andrea And said I don't know where to begin She says You know my My congregational leader My pastor You know he's a pretty smart guy And she said Why don't Why don't you uh, Talk to him I'm sure He knows stuff On slavery With the confederacy With the union And stuff So they called me I said sure Come on in We'll, we'll fake it We'll do something Talk to them for two hours. Two hours about the nature of slavery in the Civil War. What the Bible teaches about slavery. We're all slaves to sin. And we're in need of the forgiveness of God. Those two gals walked out of there. I'm just trying to tell you about witnessing. Not just to Jews, but all people when we have the opportunity. They walk out the door. You could ask Dolly. You could ask Michelle. They stop at the door. One of the women's was, one of the gals was a Kazakh from Kazakhstan, a Muslim. I had no idea. I didn't ask him anything like that. And she says, as she's walking out, you know, our teacher was telling us what the Bible says about slavery. I had no idea it says it the way you said it. I have no idea that it means the things you have said. I've got to study the Bible. I want to read the Bible more because that was really interesting. And I've got to come to service to hear you speak. They leave. The door opens up and Andrea Plattner's friend, Claudia, opens the door. She says, I just want to say something. I was raised in a church. I've heard Christian things a lot. But I'm not really interested in it. But I am now. I'm really interested in this. And you really touched my heart. I'm talking about slavery in the Civil War. What the Bible has to say. God can make a difference when we care about people for who they are and what their ultimate need is. And that extends to both Jews and non-Jews alike. So please do not misunderstand anything I say when I say a lot of things about the Jews. It's easy for me to do because I'm Jewish. But I'm telling you, and I guarantee you, I care as much for those who are non-Jewish that they might know the Lord as I do for my own people. And that's why I spent 18 years pastoring a church of Gentiles. But God has a calling for Beth that's different than the church I left. Its calling is to be a witness, not only to the Jews, but certainly to the Jews. And Paul's instruction is that it is to the Jew first. I mean, come on. It's to the Jew first. It means preeminently, it's most importantly for them, not because they need to be saved more, although maybe there's something to be said there, but it's more importantly because it's part of God's covenantal promise. To them, If God doesn't do this, he's failing in his promise to his people. And therefore, preeminently, it must be presented to them. And so we need to be about this business. Not because they're more important souls, but they are important to God's program. They're equally valid in their soul need for salvation as all people. We have a unique opportunity to do something special. And this is it. He says, salvation, and for those who are non-Jewish, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That's your job. That's what Paul says. That's not what I'm saying. He's saying those who are non-Jewish have a role to play in God's work among his people. Don't you want to play that role? Even if you don't, don't you want to obey God? You know, would you want to ask God, change my heart so I can do your will in making Jewish people envious for God, to entice Jewish people to want to know the Lord, not just to speak down our noses, we know something you don't, but to sort of like, I've got to believe, like those girls that left, I've got to study God's word more, I've got to hear more of this. Wouldn't it be great if we had Jewish people say, man, I never had it cleared like that, I've got to look at this more. That's your job. I mean, it's mine too, but it's your job more than it's my job because that's what Paul says. Salvation has come to you not just to get you to heaven, but to do something important here on earth with regard to his chosen people. And that is to so live a life of righteousness and love toward them when it hurts that they now say, I need to know this Messiah like you do as well. That's your job. That's your calling. I make no apologies for saying it because that's what Paul is saying. And if it grabs you in the wrong way, you need to check your heart with God because that's what he is telling you. He's telling me things too, but he's telling you that along with maybe other things. So that's what this one new man idea is all about. Jews and Gentiles in the body of Messiah. In many ways, our congregation is more faithful to this than many churches. Not all churches, but many churches. You won't find one Jewish believer in it. Here, you're going to find many Gentile believers too. And we're grateful for that. I'll say that haphazardly or secondarily. That's what it means to be what God is at work. He's uniting Jews and Gentiles together under The love of our Messiah and the redemptive grace of Messiah. That's a universal reality, but it can be localized in our congregation and is. Messiah is our peace. This dividing wall is interesting. We can't get into it, but it was the wall that divided Gentiles from entering the temple. He's saying that's broken down. Why? Because the law is broken down. And now Gentiles can enter places where the law said they could not. So it works both ways. The end of the law frees us from Shabbat, but it also gives immediate access to Gentiles where they didn't have it. You can't have it both ways. If you want immediate access, you can't have the law. If you want the law, you can't have immediate access. There's no other ground, you know, as Dylan would say. There's no middle ground. So Messiah's purpose was to produce one new man. He accomplishes his purpose through creation. It's really interesting. He created a one new man. Same word that's used for God's creation of the world. It's like this whole new thing. He brings out of nothing. And uh, it's the universal family of believers. So ultimately, we have our purpose to present. Oh, and let me just say this. And I'm trying to bring it to a close. I'm sorry. I'm going much too long. This is how my mind works. But I hope this is helpful. This is our ultimate goal of goals. Our goal is not to promote Jewishness as much as we may want to. Our goal is to present every member mature in Messiah. That's what Paul says. It says he led cap- cap- captivity captive and he gave gifts to men some apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints. Notice the gifts to men are not joy, love, and uh, teaching and all that, it's people. We are gifts to one another. Those who are apostles, those who are prophets, those who are pastor teachers, we are the gifts God is giving to us, though we oftentimes don't treat each other that way. But we are. And our role in being gifts to one another is so that we can be presented mature to the Lord. That's our ultimate goal. We're not promoting Jewishness. It's a tool to bring people to maturity in Messiah. We must never forget that. A messianic congregation's goal and job, and I would say any congregation, any church, is that people grow in the Lord. So this has to say two steps. We've got to lead individuals to faith, and we have to grow them, guide them in their devotion. That's what maturity is. We're devoted to the Lord. So the purpose of Beth Ariel has uniquely, sovereignly been called by God to do this maturing work, particularly, though not exclusively, among the Jewish people. That's God's call on us. It's not something we sort of manufactured. It's what God has told us to do. So this necessitates we consider the following principles, and this is sort of bringing it to a close. So we desire to be more effective in our calling of leading people to faith, not least of which Jewish people, and seeing that they might grow in that faith. So we desire to be more effective. We think worship on Shabbat is more conducive with Jewish expectations, which will make us more effective in having them hear the good news and hopefully leading them to faith. We desire to be more honest about our faith. Worship on Shabbat conveys our conviction more genuinely that our faith is Jewish. More genuinely. I didn't say genuinely, but more genuinely because of the association of the day. We desire to clearly communicate our faith. Worship on Shabbat will help remove stumbling blocks. And as Bob has mentioned, and many of us have, we always get calls. Why do you guys meet on Sunday? Why do you meet on Sunday? I have an email to respond to a Jewish unbeliever. You know, I hear all this stuff about Yeshua and so on. Why do you guys meet on Sunday? How does that fit in to that faith? If we just remove the stumbling block, We're in a better position to be more effective, more honest, and more clearly communicate our faith. We desire to be adaptable and flexible. Worship and Shabbat indicates the importance of Jewish tradition and life as a people of faith in Messiah. I know it's inconvenient. Some people work. I understand that. I know it sort of doesn't fit, perhaps, with our present ordering of things. I understand that. But we must be adaptable and flexible because there are greater things at stake than our calendars. It's people. And if this can help us with regard to people, I think it's a good thing. So the move from Sunday to Shabbat is meant... To help us fulfill our calling as a Messianic congregation. To encourage Jewish believers to fulfill their calling as the faithful remnant. To inspire non-Jewish believers, Gentile believers. Gentile is like an archaic word to me, I can't help it. Inspire non-Jewish believers to fulfill their calling so as to entice Jews, encourage Jews, uh, Jewish people to jealousy. And perhaps further remove any stumbling blocks that might hurt us. In conclusion, what will our service then look like? Just so I have an idea. These are things in flux. These are things that are evolving. We don't know for sure. None of this stuff's in granite stone that can't be changed. But what would our service look like? What we've talked about is it'll look very much like it looks now. You know, we're not planning on doing a whole lot of different things, but I think there's room for some differences. As you notice, we got a ner tamid. I love these menorahs. I love the lights. I mean, I just think the place looks beautiful. And we want it to look more and more beautiful and we want it to focus on the things that makes this place beautiful, the Messiah and his word. So what will be our service times? This is all up in the air, but we're thinking 10 to 11.30. We want, don't want you to spend your whole Saturday here. We want you to be able to get out and go about and enjoy your Saturday. Now you'll have the rest of the Saturday and all of Sunday. Think about that. So, we, And if we could move it earlier, if everybody says, man, I could be there at nine, I'm up for this. I only live two miles down the road. But what will be our first, when will it be? This is what we're thinking. As I said before, uh, looking toward the fall, September 3rd, I think, Wednesday is Rosh Hashanah. We'll have a Rosh Hashanah service. September 7th, I think it is, is Saturday. I asked Deb and Vince if they'd bring their musicians to a whole concert here for us to celebrate and perhaps begin to acquire some funds to think about purchasing of this property or some other property. Deb and Vince are very happy to do that and would love to do that to help bolster uh, Beth Ariel. The following Friday is Yom Kippur, Friday night. I don't know the dates now. I'm not looking at my calendar. But the Saturday, I think, is the 7th. And that's Yom Kippur Day. We'll meet on that Sunday after Yom Kippur Day, which would be our last Sunday. And the following Saturday, Sukkot. And so we'd set up our sukkah. We'll, we'll celebrate like Nehemiah. They rebuilt the wall. And the first thing they did was celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That was not planned Uh, In any way, shape, or form. It just occurred to me as I'm standing here before you. Like Nehemiah and Ezra, we can celebrate a new beginning of an old ministry. I mean old in terms of a historic ministry. And do like Nehemiah and Ezra did. We'll raise the word of God up. We will pray. We will celebrate. Perhaps we might mourn but we will ultimately rejoice because of what God has done. Okay, so that's my uh, presentation for you.